Today I welcome James Dahl, Master at Wellington College in the UK. In this episode, we talk about whether education is still fit for purpose, the changing role of AI in education, centering education on being human, the future of assessment, and whether university is really still relevant today. I want to talk to you about education. That's what the podcast is around. It's about inspiring schools and leadership and really what's going on. The first question I want to pose to you is that you know, many would argue that today's education model is not fit for purpose. You know, for the last few years, I've been speaking to lots of people around skills versus knowledge. You know, we're on this conveyor belt just again to exams and the next level of education. What are your thoughts? My thoughts are that things need to develop and adapt, but I don't think the system is as broken as some of the headlines. You'll see Gary Neville on TV saying, you know, we've got this prehistoric education system. The idea of sending young people to a place where they are immersed in learning about the world around them, some of the most exciting is being inspired by teachers who are passionate about those areas, an opportunity for them to discover who they are and develop knowledge and skills and character that will last a lifetime and enable them to thrive as adults. That's always been there. You know, funnily enough, when all of our children came back from the couple of online bits of school that we had. I talked to loads of them about, you know, do you see this, the future? You're not going to school anymore, just logging onto computer and using technology and the advances of AI. Every single child said 100% not. You know, we love school. We love the fact that school gives us to each other and gives us a community where we can grow as young people. That sort of concept is as valid as ever. I think there's aspects of our educational model that, you know, you need to question. So, There's things around sitting in a classroom with a pen and paper and the way in which technology is woven into that. You know, we need to be making ground there. Mind you, having said that, I've been a teacher for 25 years. And for every single one of those 25 years, we've been told as teachers that the ed tech revolution is just a year away and technology is going to transform the way in which we do things. And it never has. It never has. And then the pandemic happened. The growth in AI has happened. And then I personally believe that we're on the cusp of seeing some quite transformational change in that regard. And we'll probably come on to that. I guess the other part of it too is the assessment piece of our education system is going and sitting in an exam hall with a pen and paper, just as they did in 1859 when Wellington was first opened. The best way to assess young people and the knowledge, skills and character that we need in young people moving forward. And again, I would argue that there's there's still a place for assessment and there's probably still a place for being tested on some stuff that you've learned. But I think there are interesting ways in which we could push assessment forward. Wellington is an IB school as well as A-level in the sixth form. This year, 116 of our upper six did IB and 118 did A-level. And A-level is primarily all done on a pen and paper exam, regardless of the subject, with the exception of art and DT and a few of them in an example. The IB is really interesting because it has an examined element, but it also has an ongoing assessment, a coursework element. And there are also aspects of it too, which are assessed through presentation and through oracy. And you've got Keir Starmer saying that oracy needs to be a central part of the education system moving forward. And so I think actually there's a lot that our domestic assessment system can learn from some of the way in which the IB do things, where they take a more holistic view of each individual child when they assess and come up with a grade at the end of it all. So not fit for purpose, I wouldn't go that far but definitely some areas for reform and change that could make it a little bit more progressive, modern, and equip our young people with knowledge, skills, and and characters that they need moving forward. And I'm sorry, I'm talking a lot, but there's one more thing that I'm going to say. I think the knowledge versus skills debate 
is the wrong question because knowledge and skills are not in opposition or fighting against each other. Knowledge and skills are two sides of the same coin and you can't develop skills without knowledge. And knowledge is by necessity has a skills element to it. And I mean, if you think about like learning to play the piano, there's an element of you've got to know where C and B flat are. You've got to know how to read music. That is part of developing a skill of how you then press the C and the B flat and how you, you put that together to create music. And so Daniel Willingham referred to knowledge and skills as being like scrambled egg, different things, but that um, inextricably enmeshed together. And he's absolutely right. For me, it's knowledge and skills, not knowledge or skills. And it's how you mix that egg, right? We all like our eggs differently. It is the proportions you want to put of skills and, and knowledge together. But I, I'm with you. I mean, the assessment absolutely needs to be looked at. It's great that, you know, I know that Wellington's been doing the IB for a long time and character was obviously introduced many, many years ago. And that's, I think, a, a massively great foundation because it's giving all of your students that broad outlook as to what makes the human human, those kind of character skills. The interesting about the IB, and it's great that, again, you do both, but do you think the IB is just completely mis... Well, maybe not completely misunderstood, but it's just misunderstood. There's an education to be had around what is IB because it's obviously come in from outside the UK and lots of schools are doing it. Most parents who didn't have it themselves and putting their kids through school, how do we educate more schools or parents on the benefits and the opportunities to IB? It's tough because, as you say, most of our parents, our domestic parents, went through a system that was very different. The A-level system, you, you choose your three or four. That's the gold standard, the domestic qualification, the IB. Obviously, you do six subjects and, and it's more limited in some regards because you have to do maths, you have to do a science, you have to do a modern language, you have to do a humanity, you have to do a English, and then you get a sixth option where you can do a second science or a second language, or you can do something creative like music and so on and so forth. So some people look at that and they run a mile because the first thing they want to do is drop languages or drop maths. The way in, in which it holistically develops our young people and the way in which it actually has a model of education behind it. It has a whole series of values and uh, it has a learner profile of, of the sort of young people it's trying to develop. It also has a core where you're doing activity and service and community-based work in there as part of it. You're doing an extended essay, which is like a sort of independent research essay. There's a theory of knowledge component to it as well. So you're actually asking about, you know, what what is knowledge? How do we define it? What is truth? Yeah, it's just a remarkable preparation for the world of university and beyond. And I think part of it is just explaining what it is. I think part of it is demystifying that actually, you know, even if you're not great at modern languages or maths, you know, you can do maths or modern languages at a standard level rather than a higher level and, and still benefit from that. I think the universities in the UK have understood what the IB is for quite some time now and value it very highly. I would even go so far as to say that some of the most highly sought after courses at some of our most highly sought after universities tend to give offers that are slightly more accessible for IB students than A-level students, sharing the magic of the IB and explaining, you know, it's just a great educational offering. But having said all of that, it's not for everyone. If you are an absolutely maths and science whiz and you want to do maths, further maths, physics and chemistry, you just can't do that under the IB because you have got all of these other things that you're doing as well. So that's why a school like Wellington will always aim for 50-50, will always offer both routes. But we think that the IB for the right student is a fantastic option. 
Yeah, and it's great that you can offer both because you're actually giving every child that opportunity to be able to find and learn in a way that suits them. And that is the purpose of education, to have a love of learning and to ensure that that we enable and inspire every single child who goes through school to love it, to thrive in what they're good at, to be challenged, but also to unlock something that when they go to the next level, and that's, I think, the biggest part of assessment or the, you know, going off to university is, you know, is that what we're aiming for? But you're kind of stuck on a conveyor because that's what the expectation is. It's you have to get through these level to unlock the next level to move up because that's just the rules in which we've got to play. So as I look down through all my children, probably my two most academic are through, and they've saw the A-level suited them. When I look down at my younger two, more creative, I do think that more practical that the IB is something that we're certainly looking at. But again, it's alien to us. I don't agree with the A-levels necessarily, but we're just bound by what we have access to as we do that. Can we talk about sort of unlocking sort of higher education and what your thoughts are? I mean, is university, you know, I've read a lot over the summer in regard to obviously gradings and you know, universities are being tougher because of the last few years we've had under kind of lockdown rules. Is university still relevant? Do you think it still has the cachet and the importance that it once had or is it diluted? For our pupils here at Wellington, the university route is still absolutely the route that 99% of them want to go through. Now, whether that is because that's just what their parents went through, that's just because what everyone else is doing and so we must do it or whether it is genuinely because the experience that they will get there will prepare them for adult life and the world of work better than any other route. I think there's a question mark around that. Don't think it should be the only route. I'm sad that the apprenticeship route hasn't taken off more than everyone had hoped. The concept of you know combining university-level academic experience with practical workplace-based experience that benefits both the employer and the individual. And that allows you to come out at the end of it with the same education experience that your mate who's gone to Bristol or Exeter or Bath or wherever. You're not saddled with debt and you have a whole host of workplace-based skills that you wouldn't have got from sitting in an exam hall for three years. And you've probably got a job at the end of it all. What is there not to like about that model? I guess you'll get those who'll say, well, look, actually, what I'm interested in is the university experience, going somewhere, just immersing myself in, you know, if you want to be a philosophy undergraduate or read history or English or classics, as I did, there isn't a work-based classics, you know, go be a classics teacher alongside your degree. Yeah, you know, actually, what I wanted to do is have the university experience and just immerse myself in the world for three years. And so the university route for those sorts of more traditionally intellectual academic pursuits, I think is still very much a one to be applauded. But there's two things that I have an issue with with university, Simon. One is we as schools are desperately trying to not just be about exam grades, but be about the whole child, develop personality, develop character, develop experience, develop well-rounded, good young people with positive character and good values who are going to contribute positive to the world. We have employers who are saying, Look, it's not all about exam grades. In, in our employment processes now, we're looking at character and the ability to work as a team and resilience and on all of these, not soft skills. These, you talked about humanity and being a human earlier on. These are fundamental human skills that we all need and to develop. So we've got employers saying that. We've got schools trying to produce more holistic children. And you've got universities in the middle who are judging young people purely on a really narrow set of academic criteria. And so it feels like 
the whole thing is, isn't joined up. So I definitely want to get universities more onto the broader holistic piece that we're all interested in, I think. The second thing that I think is not fit for purpose with our universities, but we're stuck in a rut, is the timing and the whole process of the way in which we apply to universities. We go through this rigmarole of doing predicted grades, 75% of which are incorrect. Then, you know, kids apply, they get these offers, they, they accept, and then lo and behold, the results come out and we have clearing, we've got kids missing, we've got kids overforming, we've got kids under. And in an ideal world, if I could wave a magic wand, everyone would do their age 18 assessments. They'd know what they've got. And then they would know what routes are open to them. And then we would have the application process after that. And I think you'd get a better fit of young people for course and institution. We've gone around that circuit in the last couple of years trying to find a post-assessment application process for universities. And we've got nowhere. Can't help but feeling that the whole route through universities, if that's the right route for an individual child, would be better served if we just changed the way and we did university applications. So uh, a long-winded way of saying, I think for many students, university is still you know, absolutely right. But I think universities could and should be doing more to sort of join the gap into employment as well as that sort of academic experience that they offer. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, since we did it, I mean, it was, you know, they, we, we didn't have to pay for it. Being saddled with with so much debt, you know, it, it's always been the, this is it. You have to, you know, go to university. It's going to get you a better job. You know, your future's brighter. But the problem is there's been too many universities being kind of created, lots of courses, kind of marginal courses, just to get as many people into going into higher education when it may not be right. And now they're saddled debt. I was reading recently that they've had more people leave university the last few years. Yes, we've obviously had the impact of lockdown. Just because I think through inflated grades as well is that people were pushed into these when actually it was the wrong thing to do. So I think there needs to be a normalization. I do think university has a place for the intellectually driven pupils who want to do that. But university is about growing up, right? And if you can, BTECs have had a bad rap again, misunderstood. It's this poorer, younger brother to A-levels. Apprenticeships, again, it's kind of, you know, we'd sort of look down at these things because it's alien and it feels like, oh yeah, but that's, I wonder whether or not his parents like driving this because we're kind of going, well, I don't want my son to do an apprentice. What am I going to tell my friends? When you really kind of scratch the surface of what a human is, how you react. I agree. Apprentices, we've got a couple of friends doing it with the kids and absolutely thriving. I just love seeing these kids who are struggling at school, who have now gone off and absolutely thriving. Just love it. It's exactly the right thing. So surely schools have got to be that advice. I mean, it's become more of a careers service. Like, How do you sort the careers or life service for your pupils? Absolutely. Finding the right journey for the right child is, is just, you know, a part of what education is all about because all children are different. And, you know, a one size fits all conveyor belt is not the right thing. And, but all schools, I think, need to do a little bit more about this sort of preparation for the world of work. And you'll get some who'll say, that's not what schools are for. But I would disagree. If, if schools fundamentally, if education is fundamentally about unlocking in young people, the ability to discover who they are, how they fit into the world around them, and then equipping them with the knowledge, skills, and character to be able to successfully operate as an adult. Part of that has to be about the knowledge, skills, and character and how they operate in the world of work. And so I, I think schools, when I was at school, what did careers advice look like? You could be a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, I think it was. Or you can go and be an accountant. I think it was the professions. Very much so. And I remember doing an online, probably 1993, 1994, doing an online test 
then, you know, are you interested in working with people? Yes. Are you interested in no? And then at the end of it, it said, we think you should be X, Y, or Z, which basically is what you've answered on the questionnaire because you said you wouldn't be good with useless. So I think schools can tap into loads of different areas. Well, one are young alumni. More and more, we've got alumni who are in their 20s or in the world of work, many of whom have done a couple of really interesting things by the age of 27, 28, 30. Get them back in, get them talking to, engaging with young people, leverage the network of parents that you have at the school, get them in for career speed networking events, get a network together that allows young people to access internships and experience, explicitly teach about how to put a CV together you know, the skills that are needed within the workplace. And if schools can do that really, really well, that educational journey up to at the age of 18 will be enhanced by that. And funny enough, going back to the university's point, Simon, I talk to a lot of young alumni, a lot of young old Wellingtonians who come back. And I won't mention the universities that they've gone to where they come back and they've been pretty negative about their experiences there. But one of the universities where universally we hear positive feedback is Bath at the moment. So we're finding more and more interest in Bath. And of course, Bath have pioneered this third year sandwich placement year in, in industry or in work. And so four year course, one, two, then you're off and then you finish. And I wonder whether that is also a way in which more universities are going to go. You know, not just the, the academic skills and knowledge needed, but you know, engaging with industry and corporations and organizations to better prepare our undergraduates for that transition into the world of work. And aren't Bath still not in the exclusive Russell Group? And yet, you're right, they are the ones that have the highest employability, you know, in terms of they are connected with businesses. So they've got savvy to connect with the paymasters, but also the ones who are shaping the world from university. So it's a heady mix. And, you know, it's you guys are in the pole position to help shape that with what you're doing. And, you know, coming out with character, having those human skills, having some confidence, you know, that I think the World Economic Forum. You know, they look at what skills employers are looking for, and it's always creativity, problem solving, and the ability to be adaptable. If we can have those within school and you can come out and get on the next level, then surely you've succeeded in your jobs at school. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. With the pandemic, technology saved us. It enabled us to carry on and be able to produce content and connect with students or anybody in businesses. So the internet saved us as opposed to ed technology saved us. And I think, you know, you talk about this, it's going to transform. The problem with technology is that people think it's going to change things. So you end up making decisions based on it as opposed to bring it in and it being an enabler and a lever. How do we make sure we don't get carried away? And what are you doing at school to ensure that ed tech is brought in to augment and improve the learning experience as opposed to being almost not like a replacement because it's this easy? What you just said there is spot on, Simon. And whenever we look at any technology that we want to embed within school life at Wellington, it's got to augment and improve what's already there, not replace or become the focus. And what we're saying about augmenting and improving, augmenting and improving learning and learning outcomes for young people, because you can have a really whiz-bang bit of tech in a classroom that looks fantastic and you get to the end of it, the kids haven't learned anything. 
And there's a lot of snake oil salesmen out there. And very, very interestingly, a lot of the AI-driven platforms that are starting to come online, so you look at what Khan Academy are doing, Century Tech, all of this is there to sit alongside a teacher. And so the human is still there in the room. The human is still there doing what humans do best, but using the best of AI in order to deliver differentiated support to different children on their learning journeys in order to help their learning be as effective as possible. Whether that's a, a sort of, you know, in maths, for example, having an AI-driven chatbot on the screen and as a child is, so the teacher is taught a concept and then the children go off and, and complete some practice sums on tech. And as you're going through, each child has an AI chatbot that's giving them real-time feedback saying, oh, just hold on there. You've just made a mistake with that step. What were you trying to do? And each child is therefore getting the individual feedback from AI, but that's not replacing the teacher who is the person who can see when little Johnny walks into the room and is upset, is able to see that and is therefore able to differentiate the way they engage with that young person for the next half hour based on that human skill. It's just augmenting and supplementing the skill of the teacher and is used as just another tool in order to improve each individual child's learning outcomes rather than replacing the human in the room. That is the way I think we'll see the most effective tech and AI go. But you and I both know that the biggest problem with technology is that A, it's changing too fast, right? How do we keep up? You know, we're starting to look at recruiting the best people to come into teaching. So when you got into teaching, you know, many years ago, you were drawn into it. There's less people wanting to go into that. You've now got to invest probably a lot of time and budget to ensure that your teachers are capable of teaching this generation. It's, it can't be, this is what, you know, you were taught at teacher training. This is very different. We've got to be, you know, bringing you know, personalization through AI into a lesson. Wow. Me bringing it into a business is transformational, which means I have to like invest in my, like all my staff just to shift things. How do you go about that? And is there a sense in this common room that, you know, teachers are worried because it's just another overloaded thing they have to be good at as opposed to inspiring children? Yeah, it's tough. Some teachers who, I'm not saying there are any here at Wellington who've been teaching for 35 years, but they've taught the same lessons for 35 years in a row. And and the very best teachers are those who are constantly reflective. A deputy head that I worked with at Brighton College in my, my early years, a chap called John Spencer, who's head of geography, he was a deputy head to Anthony Selden there. And actually he stepped back from all of his other leadership positions in his final few years at teaching there because he just said, I want to be the best possible teacher that I can be in the final few years of me working as a teacher in his 60s. And I thought, wow, if I am like you in my 60s, still constantly striving to be better tomorrow than I was yesterday in my classroom practice, then that would be amazing. Inevitably, that means it improves learning and that changes year by year. Um, so yeah, there's lessons you learn from cognitive science about the, the actual art and science of learning within the classroom. But it inevitably comes with technology as technology develops too. So I think as an individual school, you just have to have A, an embedded culture of desire for constant improvement. And be support there for people to try new things in a no-blame culture. And that includes embedding tech. And if you create the right culture within the teaching staff and you have the right middle leaders who are running the departments who, who, who buy into that, then you get an organization where teachers are looking to improve and, and technology is just a natural part of that. The challenge comes, of course, when you're dealing with children like yours and mine who are 100 steps ahead of you on the tech. And that's where you've got to just have 
ongoing professional development, learning and support opportunities to embed that. But it's totally doable. And do you think you need to, you know, schools need to invest more time? Have you felt that or have you found that you've had to, you know, increase inset days or staff PD days to ensure that, yes, you have to do the mandatory things to do with, you know, safeguarding and the other bits that are part of your kind of regulatory commitments. But there's a bigger side because everything's changing, dealing with what kids are dealing with, the online piece, their behavior, you know, how they feel when it comes to love and self-esteem, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. They've got to do that, not as just a parent, but also like, you know, you're a parent and you're a, you're a master at a school. You've then got to find more time to give them those skills. Are you able to do that? 100%. It's not easy. But schools need to. We, we use an external company that, as well as our internal resources who come in and offer bespoke training for different departments, different areas of school. Teachers, adults are just like kids, right? They're, their strengths and their experiences and, and their expertise with technology is all in a different place. So the idea of getting 170 teachers in, the, in a room at the beginning of term and delivering one inset session that caters to all of their needs isn't going to work. So we have to do some of the bigger picture stuff. We do some of the bespoke training, also sort of train internal sort of champions and people who are experts on the particular tech. We, we're a Microsoft school. We're the first independent school in the UK to be a Microsoft showcase school. And so we have a really close relationship with Microsoft. Our head of IT here who runs the systems is on the, the board of the Microsoft global board for customer services. So we're sort of really plugged into that. And we have Microsoft sort of champions in departments who can just go off and troubleshoot and support individual teachers with the tech and their needs. I really feel for teachers. I started teaching in 1998 and I just taught classics. And I did a bit of sport and I was a tutor. But now we've got to be mental health first aiders. We've got to be experts in AI tech. We've got to know all the latest cognitive neuroscience so that we can develop our classroom expertise. You know, and that's on top of you know, knowing the new A-level specification in history or whatever it is. And all of the other things, you know, dealing with parents who, who are increasingly more engaged. That's a polite way. I like that. More engaged. <laughs> I'll go back to what I said at the beginning. You know, the reason I went into education not to become a DJ is a huge amount of fun. Working with young people keeps you young. It is exciting every single day. And yes, these things, AI, tech, mental health, they throw challenges at you. But no one who goes into working with young people goes into it thinking that it's going to be a walk in the park and they're going to earn loads of money. They do it because they're cool to it. It's a load of fun. And it's just a brilliant way to spend your life. Two more questions. Just quickly about AI and ethics. So that's obviously the big topic right now. I do a lot of, sort of speaking and writing just around, I call it a sort of content shock, which is that we're so overwhelmed. There's so much content being streamed 24-7. You know, we don't have the ability or the biggest bit is that we don't actually turn off notifications. So we're constantly on. How do we make sure that we do find the time to not always be on? Because it's so easy if you're always connected like that to allow things just to happen. So not to challenge. AI then goes in, you don't check it, you put an app in front of a child. We start to believe things because we haven't got time. How do we find more time? I don't know. I've got an answer to that. But it's funny, isn't it? You, we have all of this technology that, you know, when you and I were at university, we had none of it. And yet we are busier than ever before. Yet all of this technology has been introduced to make our lives easier. And that just doesn't add up. I think, I think we've just got to be very, very explicit about it as schools, as adults. That's explicit in education around the impact of just being plugged in permanently. 
and explicit around the rules and regulations that we have in place. Well, one of the things that we've started doing well into the last two or three years is when we have half-term holidays or exit weekends, you know, we have email moratoria now. And I, I literally say to the teaching staff, you do not send emails over this next two days. It's really, really important that each and every one of you gets off your devices and reads books, goes for walks, reconnects with your families, has those human experiences that brings joy to life. With students we, we've had in the past year, we've had no tech days, only allow our year nines to have their mobile devices with them for one hour a day. And we sort of ease the, the restrictions around that as they get older. And we make it very explicit that we're doing this for each other's and for their benefits. And I, and I think parents have got modelling to do that. And I am as guilty as anyone. We talked earlier on about film the menu, and I was watching it a couple of nights ago with me, my wife, and my daughter. And my daughter took a photo of me and my wife watching the film, but we were both on our phones. And she took a photo of us and then messaged us, sent it to his text messages, and just said, yeah, really sociable. But how brilliant that she, a 15-year-old girl, was calling us out for being on our phones when we should have been in the moment watching the film. It's the role modelling. We're as guilty, and if we're so not addicted, but we're also caught up in it, that we do need to disconnect and to look around us. But it's very difficult. The problem with that is that it's the trust element. You know, you're reading a lot about deep fake, what's happened in the summer with the Hollywood kind of walkout. They're seriously worried about it because also we're just so trustworthy. We had fake news. We've, we've had some electioneering, you know, all those things that happened in the past. It's going to be hard now because we just trust it because it's so believable and so good now, the deep fakes, the AI stuff. That's what we've got to surely be teaching, you know, our students. And that's the skill that teachers need. So how do you get to trust something rather than just believe it? You know, and there's a role to be playing in the classrooms around the country. Of, and you kind of already study this in English language, persuasive texts. And we do a lot around study skills here because of the extended essay in the IB and because everyone in the sixth form does do the ID, does the EPQ. So we're talking about, you know, how to cite sources, the validity of sources, the strength of sources, and, you know, what are trustworthy, what aren't. And, you know, that has to be woven into what you're doing within schools. Last question. I want you to look into your crystal ball. Tell me what you think the future of education is going to look like in 2050. 2050? Gosh, 27 years' time. Yeah, 27 years. Come on. We're at this cost of technology. We talked about human. I mean, where do you think we are going to be? Actually, I've been working in schools for 25 years. Like fast forwarding to 25, that's basically the same amount of time I've already been working in schools. The day-to-day feel of a school now compared to 1998 when I started, it's, it's probably very similar. You know, get out of bed, they get dropped off, they come in, we do registrations, they go to lessons, they play some sport, they do some music, they're engaged in learning. And, and at the end of it all, they leave and they go off to universities. Yeah, fundamentally, I think that that model will still be in place in 2050. I do hope, however, that education will still be for all of the technological advances, which are just going to continue to go like that, as you quite rightly say, it's going to be fundamentally a human activity because the growing of young people, the fostering and mentoring and coaching and education of young people is best done by other people. I reckon schools in 2050 won't be as different as they are today. I really do hope that the assessment system will have moved on a significant amount um, from where we are now. I wonder whether there'll be exams at 16. I think there'll be some form of assessment at 18. I think it'll be a much more holistic. I hope there'll be more convincing ways of measuring character and skills as well as sort of core knowledge. Just wonder whether schools won't quite be as different as we think that they might be. You can connect with me on Twitter, 
Instagram and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.